0: Thank you, Mary. The water her ready this morning. If I start to uh, move it up there, hopefully I won't knock it off and create a scene and a mess. I'm glad you're here. enjoy the fellowship with you, and I'm looking forward to everything that we get to experience under the movement of the Holy Spirit as he works in our midst. You know, works His will and His word in our hearts, and, and uh, accomplishes all that He wants to do through this fellowship of saints. So I'm, you know, when I think of things like that, I'm glad to be here. A couple things I did want to mention. Uh, one is we do need to have a meeting after, right after church this morning. Um, I just heard this morning our what do you call that thing? Mailbox. Our mailbox got run over out here. It's gone. Disappeared. And did you say was it like a week before that or a week after or just afterwards or what was it? That the post office had asked us to move it? About a week before the post office had contacted us asking us to move it and then just a few days later somebody moved it all right. And they ran over it and they took it out as <laughs> So the decision that's up is this. Um, We can put the mailbox out by the road out here, or it could go up here by the building. Of course, if we're going to put gates up like we've talked about, then we can't put it up here by the building. We'd have to put it out by the road. So I guess that kind of puts us in a position where we need to talk about that and decide which way to go. On that thing. Also, I thought I might mention that, do uh, you remember Alan Brooks mentioning a missionary in Indonesia by the name of James Daly? He was one of the two that he met up with. Uh, the other was Tom Crawford. Uh, Tom Crawford's with another mission board. James Daly is with BIMI, or the same mission board we're with. Um, he was in the office this week, and so I asked him if he would like to come and tell us a little more about. Indonesia. i mean just standing there talking to him was far different than you know the report we got from alan because he's been a missionary there for ooh, i'm gonna say 35 years or so longer than i've been with me i am i so uh he's going to be coming here i can't remember now but it's right second week of i think second week of april uh, he'll be coming up this way and i think you're going to really enjoy that too He was uh, quite interesting just to talk to. One of the things that is really pressing on his heart is that, you know, he's our only missionary in Indonesia. We've never had another one there. And he's fast approaching retirement age. And so we're looking for the Lord to raise someone up to take his place. And so I know when he comes, he'll mention that as one of his requests and desires that uh, God would raise up someone who would, Come to that little island of Nias and minister there. And they're desperately looking for someone who would come and commit to that particular place. So let's keep that in mind as that, that day approaches when he'll be coming here. Okay. Um, back to Colossians chapter 1. We've been looking at this passage for the past couple of weeks. <clears throat> and I'm fighting the cough I had last week. I thought I was going to get better, and I thought I was getting better, but I'm not so sure today. Uh, and uh, hopefully I'll keep my voice through the whole thing. And so I brought my water up just in case, and I was supposed to take that delsum uh, and I forgot. And so I've got, that was to help my cough. And she, she was, We were trying to remind each other, but you know how it is. Too many things going on and getting too many distractions. And so I got my cough drop all ready to pop in here just in case. And, and, uh, and my water here too. Okay. And I was going to say something else, but I think I'll wait till the end for that. Okay. And assures sure as the world, if I don't remember to tell you, you'll ask, right? <laughs> that's what that's for. All right. I want to, this morning... Reread the passage that we read last week, and reemphasize a couple of things that, or and also to uh, nail down a couple of things that we didn't even have the opportunity to discuss. So, we're going to read verses nine through fourteen once again. This prayer of Paul's that he expresses for the people at Colossae, whom he had never met, and to a church which he was not responsible for. Um, initiating, evangelizing, and giving the gospel too. But that was for another. And this is Paul's words to them For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now We really mentioned several things last week in respect to this prayer and that there is a lot of teaching going on in this this passage here. And that Paul is expressing towards the believers at Colossae. And the thing that he zeroes in on in that regard is that they were to be partakers of or sharers in or to share a portion in the inheritance. And that's significant. Because we could stop right there and talk about the inheritance. And Paul, I think, referenced that earlier in verse five, when he talked about the hope. When he said, For the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. And we the reason we came to that conclusion is because we turned to 1 Peter 1 4. And there, you remember that Peter said that there is an inheritance reserved in heaven for you. And so there is something that God has reserved in heaven. There is more to the Christian life than just holding on to the fact, knowing the fact that, because I'm saved, because I know the Lord, when I die, I'm going to heaven. There's more there. There's something being held for us. Matter of fact, Peter says it's, it's, it's uh, unfading. I mean, that's, that's enduring. It's not losing its luster. In all these years, since Christ died and rose again, and was seated at the right hand of the Father, it's not lost one little bit of its luster and gleam, but it's unfading. And then he says, (coughs) (coughs) this inheritance, he says, of the saints in, and it's literally there, there's an article, in the light. One of the things I want us to mention here today is this little word, in, in that we talked about back in verse 4. When Paul said, since, since we heard of your faith in Christ. And we made mention of the fact that this word is a different word than when Paul says or Jesus says, uh, the gospels make reference to have faith in God or believe in Jesus. This word here is a word that has reference to a mode of operation or a sphere of activity in which you function. And so consequently, we can say that the word here has results to it or it has an association of a change in that which you believe in. So, if I say that I believe in, and then you could name your favorite football team or basketball or whatever, and then I name mine. Well, you would expect then my sphere of operation to to be in a certain place with respect to my team, while yours would be in another sphere in relationship to your team. And so when he talks about us being in Christ, that's how we are to function and live and be. It should change us, change our life so that we can be identified as those who relate to him. And when he says that we have been an inheritance, a portion that we're going to share in in this inheritance with the saints. What kind of saints? The ones in light, and it's the same word "in." It's it's the little Greek word "en." E n. And so you see, he's talking about those who relate in a specific fashion. It would be the same thing as we mentioned about John in First John when he said, "If we walk." in the light as he, God, is in the light. His son, Jesus Christ, is in the light. If we walk in that light, then we have fellowship one with another, with the saints that are in the light. But if we do not walk accordingly, then we're out of the light. And there's only one other place that you can describe. If it's not light, then what is it going to be? Darkness. So is it possible for a Christian to walk in darkness? It certainly is. Matter of fact, Paul in uh, Romans admonishes, admonishes the church at Rome to consider their walk as it relates to being in the light. In First Thessalonians chapter 5, the same thing. He says, we are not of the light, or of the darkness, but we're of the day. We're of the light. And he's, he's relating to those who walk in the light. So we don't necessarily just automatically take all Christians, those who believe in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, throw them over here in the light, And then, without any respect to how they live or walk in their daily life, that they're always in the light. Because they aren't. They walk in darkness. And the scriptures use a word that enable us to help describe that. It's used several times. Many times we get confused by it because it's translated as unbelievers. But a better translation would be unfaithful. Because the word translated, uh, pistis, translated faithful, when it says ah pistis, means unfaithful. But instead, they translated it in some instances as unbelievers. One good example of that, and I'd like you to turn there, is in Luke chapter 12, and I want us to see that. Luke chapter 12. Now, in Luke chapter 12 and verse 31, He's admonishing his disciples concerning the kingdom of God. He says, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God. And all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's the context in which he's speaking here. So in verse 35, in respect to that, he says, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. And yourselves like unto men that wait for the Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open unto him immediately. Verse 37, notice, blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes or cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. Verse 38, and if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. That is, if you're still awake, if you are still faithfully waiting for the Lord in the second and the third watch, which our eyelids, I'm sure, would be mighty droopy by that time, he says, even blessed are those servants. And this know that if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken in two. Now skip down to verse 43, where he says, Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth, I say unto you, that he will make him, the servant, ruler over all that he has. <coughs> <coughs> And then in verse 45, but if that servant, the same one, not a different one, the same servant, if that servant would say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming and shall begin to beat the men servants and maid servants or maidens and to eat and drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him and an, and an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in sunder and will appoint him his portion with the unfaithful. So we don't want to get the idea as many, many do that he's talking about an unsaved servant hurt here. He's talking about an unfaithful servant who will be severely chastised when he talks about cut asunder and cast out, appointing him his portion or share with the unfaithful. Now you contrast that portion with the portion of the saints who will receive their inheritance with all of the other saints who are in the light. It is those saints who are walking in one accord, not only with the Lord, but with one another, in one spirit, in one baptism, in one Lord, overall. Now, <coughs> <coughs> excuse me In verse 13 when he says who has de- who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son and we said that that word translated means just what it seems to imply in our minds it means to be moved from one locale to another. we also mentioned that it means it's and this word was used to describe um, an enemy coming into a territory grabbing some captives and translating them, removing them off to another location, taking them captive a change of location. now you might say well we haven't exactly moved anywhere well, It's because it's used in a figurative sense here. He's talking about removing us from the sphere of Satan's dominion and power and moving us over into the sphere of the power and the rule of Jesus Christ. And even the word kingdom here, the word kingdom here, I want to read... Something of a translation definition by Meyer who says this. Um or say, this is actually was Thayer here who said this that kingdom means royal power, kingship, or rule. And I'm gonna paraphrase now, but he says something akin to it's a mistake to think that he's talking about a actual literal kingdom. And that's important because people try to use this verse to say that we have been translated into a kingdom in the sense that we now are living and operating and functioning within the kingdom of Christ. And Christ is ruling upon our hearts so that the kingdom is right here, right now, in our presence. And we really don't really really need to look to anything future We just need to practice kingdom living and once we do that, then the king will come back and he will rule. Instead of saying, as we would believe, that there is yet a future literal kingdom which will be established upon this earth and that we are presently functioning within the realm of that kingdom with Christ as ruler and that's what the word here basileia means. When it talks about a kingdom here, he's talking about the authority that goes with that kingdom. And he's talking about being translated then from being under the authority or power of darkness and put over here under the power or authority of the light. In a whole another round. So we have another lord, another master That requires lordship. That demands that we submit to Jesus Christ. It demands that we become His disciple, that we might be His followers and clearly identified as such. And so this whole idea of saying, well, it's positional that I can just merely be in the light and then I turn around and live however I want to live do whatever I want to do because in the end God wraps his arms of love around me and he just swoops me up and carries me off and everything's going to be okay. When they don't, when they just skip over and deny the obvious fact of God's coming judgment. I mean, when he says cut in sunder, That just sounds kind of severe to me, doesn't it, to you? I mean, it it hurts just to think about that. Cut in sunder. In other passages, the Lord used similar terminology when he said, in Matthew 8, verse 12, when he said, the sons of the kingdom would be cast into the outer darkness, the darkness outside. You see, if they're not going to walk in the light, if they're going to be walking in darkness, then they can't be possessors of the light and be in the kingdom at the same time. They're going to be removed and put where they desire to walk and be. Now, um, even these words here, when he says, has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, literally we said there that's, into the kingdom of the son of his love. Now, it's hard for me to comprehend and... and um, I don't even know if I can express it in proper words <laughs> that I have the means to do so. But when he says... has translated uh, us into the kingdom of the son of his love. We have to look at something here. One of those would be the word son. The word son is the one that we need to look at with respect to the rule and the authority. Because it's a son who is the heir. It is a son who who becomes heir to the throne. And it is Christ himself who is heir to the throne. And of course, he's accomplished all that he needed to do. He accomplished at the cross, through the life that he lived and the death that he died, God vindicated through his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven to the right hand of God the Father. And one day, at a future time, he will then take that throne that is rightfully his and the one that Satan presently occupies as the prince and power and ruler of this air will be cast down in Revelation 12. He will be cast down and removed from that and then he will assume that which he has already won. He is presently... A king in absentia. You think about what the Lord taught his own disciples, like, say, in Luke 19, about a king who went into a far country to receive his kingship. A nobleman went off to receive the authority. And the right to rule in that particular land. And while he was gone, gave his servants certain responsibilities. He gave them talents. He gave them pounds. And he said, take care of this till I come back. And they were to be responsible over those things. And then at his return, he would call them to account. You know, we have systems just like that today. And all levels of government, however effective they are, that's to be determined in some other other case, they're not very effective. But we do have systems in place for those who are not effectively carrying out their responsibilities of position to recall them or call them to account, and they can be removed and lose their authority and position. Well, it's going to be no different in that day. To the unfaithful servant, there will be a loss. And I think that's the great crime of teaching and preaching today is that we don't teach people that there's going to be not just some people getting bigger rewards or better rewards than the other person, But there are going to be those who are going to suffer loss of reward as well. And the loss in the scriptures is described as being a painful thing. A sorrowful thing. And the Bible uses terms like weeping and gnashing of teeth. Won't be very pleasant. And I don't know if the Lord would use some kind of words to describe being cut asunder. Or... um, Beaten with many stripes. You know what that would be like. But I'm sure you could just say weeping and wailing over that. I know that's what I did when I got a beating. Matter of fact. I was like my oldest daughter. If I knew one was coming. I just started screaming out loud right away. Because I wanted to minimize it. You know before it happened. So I was, I was weeping and wailing before it ever happened. Yeah. I wanted to get it over with quick. Now you couldn't be like. My brother, who was stubborn as nails, and he'd see he wouldn't he wouldn't whimper anything, so mom would just keep whapping away on him. You know, to, man, you're not very smart. Quit. Get it over with. Janet tells me she used to she she used to wrestle around with her brother David, and uh, and uh, he'd get her down and and want her to say uncle, and she wouldn't do it. And her dad said, well, just say it and it's over with. And she finally learned, okay, say uncle. And so he'd get down and give her, you know, start to push her arm or something. And she'd say, uncle, uncle, you know, get it over with quick. That's the way I it was. This This judgment and this loss is going to be such a shock, such severity of loss, and yet, You read here in Paul's account here in Colossians, it's like there's a great exhilaration concerning the saints who are in the light and this portion of this inheritance in which they are going to share. Oh, wow, what we have to look forward to. What prospect there is for the faithful servant. I'm going to get off track here, I know it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, with various funerals we have attended here recently. And, of course, one was in Indiana with our sister-in-law. And then another was a fellow missionary who passed away earlier this week. And, of course, when somebody gives a eulogy, you know, you speak of that person. You kind of talk about their life and what impacted you the most and what characterized you. And I was thinking, you know, now these are not pleasant things to think of. You think, well, what if I, you know, and I'm sure you've thought of it, so don't don't hold me over here and say, you big bad boy. You know, what if I die first? And what's my, what's people going to say at my funeral? Or somebody else? And I was, th- I was thinking about such things and I thought about Janet. I said, well, what would happen now if she was the first one to die? And if I was to stand up at her funeral and say something, what would I say? And you know, the word that came up was, Faithful. That's the word I use to describe her life. Faithful. Of course, it's not over with yet. But faithful. So she's not in a box, you know. You can't just seal it up and say, oh, that's done with. No. Faithful, though. I couldn't think of a better way to describe her life than the word faithful. And that, that you don't you know for a husband that really means a lot that really means a lot to say faithful, faithful, and I mean when I say faithful, I mean in the sense of a person of faith that what we've been just talking about here today, and that's what we all of course are aspiring to be and want to be, and I think for the most part for her. Uh, I can't speak for everybody, but I think for most of us, we could say faithful. We believe what God has given us in his word. We have refused to follow the trends of the church of today, which is far removed from what we teach and preach here. Far removed. There are people if you do much reading concerning the church today who basically have just written it off entirely as being a total waste and I'm not too far off from being right there with them we've gone so far down the road just even I mean in the little bit of time that I've been uh, going to church what a drastic change it's almost like a it's like a A speeding rocket, you know, one of those uh, supersonic transports, SSTs. I mean, just speeding at blazing speed, just going down, 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 ready to crash. And if you want to see what it's going to look like when the Lord comes, turn to Revelation chapter 3 and read about the church at Laodicea. And there we will see just exactly what he's talking about. Well, Paul is building us up. He's trying to fill our minds with this knowledge. You remember back in uh, verse 9 when he says that we might be filled with the knowledge of his will. Paul (coughs) here is talking about some of this knowledge. That if we are possessed with this mature kind of thinking this mature kind of knowledge with respect to what God is doing on this earth and wants to do in our lives and what will transpire with his Messiah when he comes again, then it will enable you to remain faithful. It will enable you to be a person of faith and to accomplish the kinds of things he's talking about here. So when he says... The kingdom of the Son of His love, we're talking about then that one in whom God has directed all of his um, movement in the fulfilling of His will to bring man to the the, the logical and purposeful end of his creation. And that is to be a ruler. I mean, In Genesis 1, verses 26 and 28, when the Lord said, let us make man in our image, and he said twice, he said, let them have dominion, rulership over the earth. That was God's initial design. And as we look throughout the scriptures, as we look specifically to the book of Revelation, we see that the end result, as God reveals out in the future what lies ahead, there's going to come a day when men are restored to that very position of being rulers. But Paul very carefully defines for us here, even in this little passage, exactly who those people will be, and it's the saints in light. It's the saints who walk in the light, who continue to conduct themselves within that sphere in a faithful manner. (coughs) He tells us there in verse 14, in whom, by the way, the word in there, it's the same word again. In whom, that is, within, in Christ, in it's in him that we have redemption. Release from sin and the power of sin. And he tells us by the instrumentality of which that happens, and that is through his blood. So it's the blood that has freed us from the power of, and dominion of sin, it is the operation of God's spirit in our hearts when we believe the word of the truth of the gospel to put us from this dominion of darkness over into this dominion or kingdom of light. From putting us from the authority of one over to the authority of another. Even, he says the forgiveness of sins. And even in the English language, when you read that, you catch the sense of permanence there. That it's a done deal. That forgiveness of sins is a finished act and it is completed. Now, Something else I wanted to mention too. We're going to move on to verse 15. When he says, "Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every uh, of every creature?" and we'll be coming back to that later. For by him were all things created. For by him <coughs> were all things created. The little word "by." is actually the same word as in in verse 14 and in verse 12, when it says in light or in whom? In him were all things created. And the word for, some who have made little translations of the scripture, like Rotherham, for one, um, and, and uh, Young, in his literal translation, and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, in their commentary, say this is would be better understood as the word because. Because in him were all things created. In other words, he's not telling us here about the instrumentality of how creation occurred. Now, he does tell us that in the passage to follow. So, you can't use the language here to say that because he's not. He's telling us about in Christ, in him, in whom all things were created. That is to say, then, that Jesus Christ is the ground of all existence. That Jesus Christ, in him, All creation is dependent entirely upon Him because He is the foundation and ground of it. Now, we'll run out of time if I'm not careful because what I was going to tell you was I'm not going to keep you as late as I did last week or the week before. So I'm going to be real careful here. In John chapter 1, when the Lord says, In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. In verse three it says, all things. As a matter of fact, I better turn there. I think that's something worth looking at. In John chapter one, verse three. <coughs> and I sure as the world don't have time to go into ex- discuss this word. The word word here, Logos. But it means more than, say, a written word or a spoken word. It means the whole concept or idea was based in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole concept or idea of creation and what God was going to accomplish was in Christ. And so he says here in verse 3, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the point being here that these things which were made by Christ, Paul is telling us in Colossians that these things which were made by Christ in John, in Colossians, are all dependent upon him. He is the ground of all creation. All of its source comes from him. And so when we consider who Christ is, that he's God's son. Well, matter of fact, did did you leave John already? I did, so turn back there. He's described in John chapter 1, we looked at these earlier by various words. He's called the light in verse 7. In verse 18, he's called the only begotten Son. In verse 29, he's called the Lamb of God. In verse 41, he's called the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ, the anointed. So every time it says in the Bible, Jesus the Christ, the anointed, you know we're talking about the Messiah, the one that was promised to Israel that would come and establish his kingdom over this earth, of which they could be participants if they were considered just and righteous. Then in verse 49, he's called the Son of God and the King of Israel. In verse 51, he's called the Son of Man. All of these things taken together, <coughs> when you consider Jesus Christ as the ground of all creation, and we look at the purpose of creation and the purpose for man's creation, it all goes back to Jesus Christ. The ground of creation. And so when we determine, when we study the scriptures of what God has revealed in Christ, then we can understand and begin to appreciate what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That makes what Paul's just said here then about the things out there yet in the future to come. This future rule that's to take place over the earth. This power, this authority will one day be actually the authority that we're given under Christ will then be manifested in that earthly rule where he says we will then have power and authority. We'll rule, he says, we will share in God's rule when it says, you know, Well, the scriptures tell us that the Lord Jesus Christ himself will rule with a rod of iron. But in chapter 2 of Revelation, he says, we will rule with a rod of iron. We're going to co-rule with him. We'll share in that future authority. Right now, we live under the authority of the lordship of Christ. At least that's where we're supposed to be. So I just want to reiterate today. Some of the things that this passage was talking about, and what a positive, uplifting, encouraging thing that this ought to be for every one of us, is that if I continue, if I stay, if I walk in the light, under the lordship of Jesus Christ, under his authority, then I have every right to expect that I am one day going to be a sharer in that future portion of the inheritance that is laid up in heaven, reserved there for me. It's not something we have to quiver and shake and tremble over. It's with boldness, And confidence. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says, hold fast your confidence. Don't give it up. It's something that we have to hang on to because we can give it up and we can quit. And we don't want to do that. We want to stay enduring in the race. We may be running out of air, we may be gasping for breath, our muscles might be aching, our bones are tired and sore, our feet about ready to give out. But he says, hang on, stay in the race, and don't give up. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the treasure of the scriptures to hang on to, that we have your spirit, which teaches us, and moves us concerning those things which you've written to us and revealed to us. Lord, what a privilege we count it to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that we would do so today with an ever-increasing steadfastness, an ever-increasing devotion that would show forth itself in love for one another, as the Scriptures teach us.